There is a beauty there. It's a, a, a tragic beauty in some cases, but nonetheless, we have to, I, I think, have a respect and an awe for what nature can accomplish. A beauty that in some cases becomes tragic. It's not the way most people would describe a virus. In the simplest of terms, a virus is a snippet of genetic code. It can't reproduce on its own, so in order to replicate, it needs to infect and hijack a living cell. Scientists can't even agree whether viruses are alive or dead. What they do know is that every so often, one of them goes, well, viral. And when it does, this zombie genetic charm bracelet, this relic from a time when life was just emerging on Earth, can bring everything we've built in the meantime to a skidding halt. Well, almost everything. One thing the COVID pandemic didn't stop was cancer. And that meant that everyone at Dana-Farber had to find a way to keep on working. And they had to find a way to keep themselves and their patients safe. I'm Ken Schulman, and this is Unraveled, a Dana-Farber Cancer Institute podcast. It's been quite a year, a year like no other, at least for those of us born after the 1918 Spanish flu epidemic. It's not that there haven't been viral outbreaks since then. We've seen flare-ups of Ebola and Zika. A couple of aggressive flu strains killed several million people in the 50s and 60s. And HIV, the virus that causes AIDS, has taken more than 35 million lives worldwide. But none of these viruses shut down the world the way that SARS coronavirus has. Nobody expected this. But, you know, thinking retrospectively, it's clear that this was going to happen at some point, that there were going to be viruses that we didn't know anything about, and they were going to be transmitted from animals to humans. That's Laurie Glimsher. She studies the human immune system. Since 2016, she's been president and CEO of Dana-Farber. While she and her colleagues may not have expected SARS coronavirus or the COVID epidemic it caused, they were ready for it. They had to be. We had to be vigilant. We had to be ready to help the patients who needed us during a time that was extremely frightening for them because we have to protect our cancer patients who are immunosuppressed. And we are very familiar with and comfortable with the safety techniques one needs to put into place to keep them safe. The COVID pandemic arrived in the U.S. in early 2020. Everyone scrambled to adapt and adjust. Businesses and schools shut down. Basic goods and necessities suddenly became scarce. More than a few people panicked. But a cancer treatment and research center can't afford to panic. Well, we had to react very quickly because, as you know, cancer patients have a suppressed immune system. So COVID poses a, a special risk to many cancer patients. And we had to very quickly implement changes to ensure that we could safely care for our patients and continue to treat our patients because cancer does not pause just because there's a pandemic out there. As a first step, Glimsher formed an emergency response team. 
They made decisions, some of them difficult. They drafted strategy because they had to stay open and they had to protect their patients. Glimsher said it was almost like working in wartime. My younger son was in the Marine Corps for four years in Afghanistan um, and in the Special Forces. So I had a sense from him of what it's like to be in the middle of a war. I think it's not so different as well from being a leader of a wonderful institution like Dana-Farber because the leaders have to be calm. They have to be reassuring and they have to be extremely efficient at harnessing all that was needed to deal with a pandemic like this. With the pandemic spiking, the Dana-Farber team dug deep to keep the Institute up and safely running. They reinforced and expanded existing patient safety protocols. They hustled and scrambled to find more protective equipment. And they succeeded. Patients got their care, including the 20% of Dana-Farber patients involved in clinical trials. It wasn't business as usual. COVID changed that. The team altered many treatment plans. They reduced in-person visits to an absolute minimum. Telemedicine surged from 20 appointments a week in pre-pandemic times to over 400 appointments a day. Doctors changed drug regimens as well. Whenever possible, they shifted chemotherapy patients from intravenous to oral medications, medications they could take at home. All these adjustments reduced human contact and helped reduce the chance of infection and transmission among patients and staff. Adapting to COVID conditions took a lot of work and concentration, but it also provided a psychological lift during a very difficult time. Understandably, there was fear, but that fear did not just fester. It was translated into keeping themselves safe and our patients safe. That was the focus. Of course, crisis leadership involves clear vision and timely decisions, but there's more. In a hospital, it also involves taking care of your patients and taking care of the people who take care of those patients. Of course, there was stress, and we paid a lot of attention to emotional burnout, to stress, particularly in our patient-facing healthcare faculty and staff. Part of that attention involved providing a steady flow of information. Before the pandemic, Dana-Farber's staff convened about twice a year in the Jimmy Fund Auditorium for a town hall seminar series. With the pandemic, they met weekly. Every Wednesday at noon, the entire Dana-Farber community could log on to the forum to find updates on almost everything COVID, local and national infection rates, progress on vaccines, research into drugs that could help alleviate symptoms caused by the virus. Medical staff from other institutions also logged on. I think it's always important to have the data and to have the information. And that was, I think, the point of the Open Forum was, here's where we are, here's what we're doing about it, and we're here for you. We are here for you. We are here for each other and we are here for our patients. And, you know, if you keep as your central guidepost 
taking the best care possible of our patients and each other, then I think you can reduce some of the stress. There was a lot of stress to reduce among patients and among doctors and nurses who treated patients. This is a catastrophic pandemic with a novel virus that is a basically behaving outside of the boundaries of nature. And the reality is that it's transformed the way we view uh, our, our current healthcare environment and the risks to our patients. That's Dana Farber's Paul Richardson. He directs clinical research at the Jerome Lipper Multiple Myeloma Center. Multiple myeloma is a blood cancer. It attacks our plasma cells. These are late-stage white blood cells that secrete powerful antibodies. Plasma cells are a vital element in our immune system. They fight off all manner of threats, bacteria, fungi, and, of course, viruses. Multiple myeloma hits patients with a double whammy. It's a highly aggressive cancer and can easily spread through the body. And it knocks out our plasma cells, so our defenses lag. And so we see a constellation of risk factors for our patients that make them particularly vulnerable to the SARS-CoV-2, I should say, and then by virtue of that, complications of COVID-19. And in fact, surveys in myeloma patients across the world have shown mortality rates for hospitalized myeloma patients infected with SARS-CoV-2 to be as high as 60%. Richardson works both as a clinician and researcher. He's accustomed to seeing critically ill patients, including patients whose immune systems have turned against them following a stem cell transplant. But he says what he saw during COVID was different. Seeing this disease in its worst form and seeing the incredible commitment of the nurses, the physicians, and the teams in the ICUs caring for the patients. I mean, we've treated patients in the ICU setting they're the sickest of the sick. I've never seen, actually, such incredibly ill patients, even in my transplant experience. And to see the commitment that we have to our patients is just unbelievable. It's been a privilege. Although they'd never dealt with this specific virus before, Richardson and his team knew what they needed to do. First, protect their patients from becoming infected. And then, once their patients were safe, to repurpose their research to help in the fight against COVID. Protect the patients. That meant shielding them from the virus that causes COVID. Doctors like Richardson know how to do that. They're used to protecting patients whose immune systems are down. But repurpose? How could the lab leverage its work in multiple myeloma to help counter the effects of the pandemic? One thing that lab could leverage was success. The Multiple Myeloma Center is one of Dana-Farber's crown jewels. Richardson and his colleagues have led the way in developing almost all the drugs doctors use today to treat multiple myeloma. The results have been stunning. In 2003, a patient diagnosed with multiple myeloma could hope to live for three years, maybe five. Today, the median survival rate can be 10 to 15 years. So Dana-Farber's been right in the thick of it, and I would think it's fair to say there probably is no comparable track record for another translational group, certainly in the United States, probably globally as well, for that matter. One of the drugs developed at Dana-Farber is called defibrotide. It's used in stem cell transplants. Transplants are used for many different types of blood cancer, including myeloma. It's a complete replacement of the bone marrow. Transplants can be very effective, 
but they can also trigger some pretty nasty side effects as the body integrates its new immune system. One of these side effects is damage to the endothelium. The endothelium forms the inner lining of all our blood vessels and lymph nodes. Endothelial cells control a number of vital functions, including blood vessel integrity and blood clotting. When these functions are compromised, patients suffer. Some of them even die. Defibrotide helps protect endothelial cells and reverse endothelial damage after the transplant. But stem cell transplants aren't the only thing that can damage the endothelium. As the pandemic spread, doctors began to see endothelial damage in severe COVID cases. That damage, and the clots the damage caused, were factors in many COVID deaths. When we recognized this phenomenon of endothelial damage being such an important part of the pathobiology of COVID-19, launched a comprehensive international project to use a drug we've developed at Dana-Farber called defibrotide to specifically target this endothelial complication. Working with domestic and international partners, the Dana-Farber team coordinated clinical trials for defibrotide in patients with severe COVID symptoms. The early results are promising. Defibrotide appears to be both safe and potentially effective in limiting and perhaps even reversing endothelial damage in COVID patients. Naturally, Richardson reminds us that these are early results. COVID-19 is such a complex disease and such a complex process, especially in its advanced stages, making the interpretation of data really quite challenging. But having said that, we have very compelling preclinical data we have an FDA-approved drug that's used for the blood vessel injury syndromes of transplant and does so highly successfully and is life-saving. And now bringing that same platform with a relatively favorable tolerability profile to SARS-CoV-2 infection, augmenting and complementing existing treatment strategies, we are very hopeful that we'll make a real contribution. All hospitals had to grapple with the fallout of the COVID pandemic. All had to adapt and quickly. The Dana-Farber team was able to sustain patient care and almost all ongoing clinical trials, even as infection numbers spiked last March. But clinical care is only one side of the equation. There was also the research side. For that side, the leadership team drafted a different strategy. We shut down completely. The laboratory operations at our institution and every institution across the country, as far as I know, shut down completely for six or eight weeks. That's Kevin Higgis. He took over as chief research officer at Dana-Farber on January 1st, 2020. Just in time, he jokes now, to oversee preparations for the pandemic. Higgis and the leadership team elected to shut down research until they got a better handle on the virus and the risk it posed, and until they could secure enough protective equipment to guarantee staff safety. Shutting down was actually not really difficult. Tell people don't come in. And, and we gave them a bit of a runway. We said, um, you know, you have a week to shut off your current experiments, um, make sure all your reagents are frozen down, make sure all your incubators are turned off, but then by whatever Friday, nobody's allowed to come in anymore. And, um, you know, stay tuned. We will tell you when you're allowed to come back. The shutdown lasted from mid-March until mid-May. But that doesn't mean research stopped at Dana-Farber. 
It's shifted, just like patient care. And Dana-Farber scientists persevered with the same sense of urgency as their clinical partners. Cancer is a tenacious foe, and the scientists who fight it are just as hard-boiled. They stayed busy working remotely. Researchers working in wet labs, those labs with cells and drugs and DNA, they had to put their experiments on hold. But all other research continued. Computational models, simulations, and analyses. Researchers with time on their hands seized the opportunity to learn new skills, especially in bioinformatics, the rapidly growing field where big data is applied to medicine. Others wrote important papers they hadn't been able to make time for, and there was a notable upsurge in grant applications. And everyone stayed in touch. I think that scientists are often obsessed with their work, and they're so obsessed that if they can't come to work, they find ways to do work. And I actually was very proud of the response of, of our research population to adapt that way. Dana-Farber reopened its research facilities on May 18, 2020. It was among the first Boston institutes to do so. Scientists returned to their labs, but in limited numbers. They worked in shifts and stayed at least six feet apart. They wore masks and sometimes gowns. And they didn't linger as they once did. There were few casual contacts or conversations. We get our experiments done, but we're not swapping ideas with people anymore. We're not sitting around the lunch table talking about why my experiment didn't work and how you can help me because your experiment did work. These are the things that make academic science a productive. It's your ability to brainstorm and to connect with other scientists. COVID has completely obliterated that from the academic research environment. You know, we see each other on Zoom now, but these kind of interactions, as I'm sure you know, they don't work well on Zoom. You don't sit around and shoot the breeze with people on Zoom because you're on Zoom all day and you, you want to be off as soon as you can. And I, I think that this, um, uh, if I had to pick one thing, this is going to be a lasting effect of the pandemic. It's the thing that we really miss the most. Still, research moved forward, even without the water cooler conversations, and even when COVID infections spiked again in August 2020. We actually did not even think about shutting down our research operations when the second spike occurred. And that is because we were very confident that we knew how to manage our risk of uh, spreading the infection. And high gestalt still have to close their doors again anytime soon, or even in the future. There's almost certainly another pandemic out there, but I think that we know what we need to do to protect our staff and to allow cancer research to remain ongoing. So I don't think it's an absolute surprise to me that viruses can become this deadly and become globally prevalent. That's Joseph Sadrosky. He's a virologist on staff at Dana-Farber since 1981. But I think that it is a surprise when any given virus achieves that goal. And the rapidity of the SARS-CoV-2 pandemic and uh, the deadliness of the virus in just you know, a little over a year of time, I think, uh, was unexpected. And, and I don't think anyone could have precisely predicted this. 
If you're like me, you may be asking why a cancer research institute has a virologist on staff. It is true that certain cancers are caused by viruses. Hepatitis B and C viruses, for example, can lead to liver cancer. Adult T-cell leukemia is caused by a virus. And the human papillomavirus is tied to cervical cancer. But Sadrowski says there's more. He says viruses have a lot in common with cancer cells, both in what they want to do and how they do it. What every virus wants to do is to make more of itself and then to spread to new hosts. There's a strong analogy between viruses and how they desire, if you will, to replicate and make more of themselves and the same kind of trend in a cancer cell to replicate itself and to make more of itself. And there is a Darwinian selection that occurs so that the viruses that are more successful, the cancer cells that are more successful at achieving that level of replication tend to be the ones that survive. Sadrowski has spent decades studying HIV. Specifically, he studies how the HIV virus enters cells to then deliver its genetic payload. Studies of HIV have yielded life-saving drugs to patients suffering from AIDS. Sadrowski's work has also helped Dana-Farber scientists develop some of the first viral vectors. These are deactivated viral shells that doctors use as vehicles to deliver vaccines. The vaccine for Ebola, for example, uses a viral vector. So do several COVID-19 vaccines. Work in HIV also helped scientists who were sprinting to develop a vaccine for COVID-19. How? Well, for starters, HIV and SARS coronavirus also have a lot in common. HIV is what's called an envelope virus. It's like the virus is wearing a coat. On the surface of that coat are viral spikes. And those spike proteins are what the virus uses to attach to target cells. The spike proteins allow the virus to enter the target cell and get its genome, its genetic information, into the interior of the cell and to begin replicating. But those spike proteins are also an Achilles heel. Yes, first and foremost, the spikes are weapons, biochemical grappling hooks that help the HIV troops breach the cell wall. But they're also targets, targets for antibodies that can stem and even stop the progression of the virus. Now that we're seeing SARS coronavirus, it also has spike proteins. Those spike proteins kill the infected cell. And those spike proteins are uh, very good targets for generating antibodies that can block the virus. And, you know, the spike proteins are the key component of all of the uh, vaccines that are now getting into the clinic for SARS-CoV-2. Because scientists had a strong foundation in spike proteins and in other viral knowledge, they were able to develop a vaccine for SARS-Coronavirus in record time. Sadrowski says there's an important lesson here. I think that the one thing that I've learned as a scientist over the years is that there are many aspects of knowledge that are valuable, and they aren't immediately practical. Sometimes, decades later, one sees how important they are and 
how much of a practical impact they have on our ability to either prevent or treat disease. And what we learned about a human T-cell leukemia virus studying a cancer-causing virus turned out to be highly relevant when we turned to HIV and the uh, AIDS-causing viruses. And what we learned there turned out to be useful in understanding uh, SARS coronavirus. Like every crisis, the COVID-19 pandemic has presented challenges and opportunities. There have been many victims. There have been many lessons, some of them hard, some of them golden, and some of them surprising. And there will be consequences, many of them, even after the pandemic is tamed. For Dana Farber, one of these consequences is an expected surge in cancer deaths. President and CEO Laurie Glimpshire says people all over the country postponed or canceled routine screenings during the pandemic. The number of people who had colonoscopies, mammograms, pap smears decreased by about 90%. So catching cancer at stage one becomes a lot more difficult when you don't have these screenings that pick up early cancers. And it's very dispiriting. The director of the National Cancer Institute, Ned Sharpless, has predicted that there'll be a 10% increase in mortality from cancer because of the absence of screening. Most people don't come to Dana-Farber for routine cancer screenings. They go to primary care. The majority of Dana-Farber patients, as many as 75%, come to the Institute with advanced cases of cancer, cancer that has already spread and is much harder to treat. So you can imagine that if you have a 90% reduction in early detection by screening, you're going to have an increase in patients that come in who have cancer that's already spread and then are hence more likely to die from their cancer. Reflecting over the past year, she's pleased at how Dana-Farber responded to the crisis, how it continued to treat patients and conduct clinical trials. She's equally pleased the Institute forged ahead with research. The mission, she says, isn't just to treat this year's patients. It's also to treat the patients who may arrive 10 or 20 years down the road. That's why it was imperative to reopen the labs as soon as possible. Because this is an amazing time in cancer research, as you know. The last two decades have been transformative. We are able to treat cancers and, in some cases, cure cancers that previously were lethal by using targeted genetics and by immunotherapy. And I was absolutely determined to not let the pandemic slow our progress towards new discoveries. Along with testing Dana-Farber's skill and stamina, the COVID epidemic also tested its mettle. Glimpshire is particularly proud of the outcome in the clinic and in the lab. Science takes a long time. Research is something that, you know, most of your experiments fail. Um, to begin with, you have to persevere. You have to be passionate and be, be dedicated and not be disturbed by failure. You're gonna fail a good part of the time as a researcher, but that doesn't mean that you, your energy and your dedication is diminished. You just have to keep at it. You learn that you can never give up. 
and be prepared to fail and just to keep at it until you succeed because we have to do something about these cancers that are particularly intransigent like pancreatic cancer or glioblastoma or ovarian cancer. And we're not going to give up. And Dana-Farber, we don't give up. We hope you've enjoyed this window into the workings of Dana-Farber. I know I have. It's been a fascinating journey. Learning about cancers that show up in disguise and about the drugs that unmask them. Listening in as world-class researchers decode the intricate dialect that cells speak with each other. Watching as doctors reset the human immune system to dismantle tumors. And most of all, witnessing the extraordinary commitment that Dana-Farber researchers and doctors and staff show every day. If you want to learn more about research at Dana-Farber, check out the Insight blog at blog.dana-farber.org insight. I'm Ken Schulman, and this is Unraveled, a Dana-Farber Cancer Institute podcast. What is it about Dana-Farber that makes it such a powerful adversary against cancer? It's hundreds of Dana-Farber researchers and clinicians making new discoveries inspired by the work of previous Dana-Farber discoverers. At Dana-Farber Cancer Institute, nothing is as effective against cancer as a relentless succession of breakthroughs. Go to DanaFarber.org stories and see how what we do here changes lives everywhere.